0: the Hay Kings podcast, sponsored by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Today I'm joined by Kat Salois. Kat works for the McGregor Company as the Director of Research and Technology. Kat has an undergrad degree in Crop Science from Washington State University, go Cougs, and a master's degree from Montana State University in Plant Science. She's worked as a Senior Research Associate and Research Scientist for DuPont Pioneer, working on soybean product development. Kat holds several patents and has received many awards for crop genetics research. Today we're going to discuss some farm-level research methodology to help producers sort through a world of bioproducts associated with soil health. Additionally, some of Kat's work has led chemical companies to add crops to product labels. I'd love to know more about that segment of the industry. And then if we have time, we can talk through some of the research she's doing in uh, the world of Timothy at, uh, well, I guess your research plots in the timothy capital of the world ellensburg
1: yes they are well,
0: yep. let's start with concept of a really high cost environment driving producers to go out in search of other alternatives
1: what you're thinking i'm assuming is the rising costs of not only fertility inputs crop protection inputs and especially as we're staring into the reality of what 2022 presents to many of the producers exactly I feel like a a huge part of what at least the research program has really turned in and leaned into is how can we drive efficiencies? Um, Because the cure for high price things isn't necessarily to reduce our overall yield inputs, right? We still have to be very cognizant of how you're functionally making money on the farm that yield in tonnage or grain is a huge driver in that. So simply cutting all of those inputs is likely not the most profitable option for many of our producers either.
0: An economist might say the marginal cost and marginal revenue, they, those two need to drive. In addition, you don't want to hurt your productivity long term too, right?
1: Correct. And that's one like you hit it right on the head with many of say our phosphorus and potassium inputs in particular. We know that we can adjust those rates based on the cost of those inputs, but it does have long-term effect on what that soil is holding and if we can make it up in seasons to come. So in many cases, we have decent reserves of phosphorus in the soil because we have been fertilizing for it we might be able to take one year at a reduced rate, but multiple years at that reduced rate, then we start pulling those reserves back that we worked so hard to get.
0: Now we're thinking about maybe pulse crops or maybe more broadly legumes. This applies to alfalfa and peas and vetch and all sorts of things, right?
1: Yes. Yep. Really, any of your forages, there's a tremendous amount of potassium in the above-ground biomass that you're functionally taking off when you're Something like alfalfa and timothy, when you're not just removing that seed head, it is a huge potassium user. Um, Something like say in the wheat crop, you'll typically lose about a hundred parts per million on your soil test, just simply bailing off straw in one wheat crop. And you can see that in the subsequent soil tests, big as night and day. Any of those biomass forage crops are very heavy potassium users. And let's just briefly
0: go into the world of micronutrients here looking, or I don't know that sulfur counts as a micro quite, but thinking about (laughs) sulfur, boron, zinc, those types of products down the line, if those are normally applied with your NPK fertilizers and you're not putting down that NPK, then you have a different decision set too.
1: Correct. And micronutrients probably... The way I think about them is our intentionality needs to be pretty spot on to drive efficiency, meaning usually micronutrients have a a tighter use pattern. Zinc would be a great example of in your grass crops, uh, forages or likewise, they have a very high demand early on in the season. So if we think about how to apply that micronutrient, say in the first month of life, that will drive more efficiency than in the middle month of life. Boron is the exact opposite. It, it has a very high demand when you go into pollinating. So if you're intentional about that use pattern, that can drive a lot of efficiency around those micros.
0: So if a producer is considering changing their fertilizer regime, having that little bit of knowledge there, you might apply zinc with an earlier product. And if you're going to do in a, in a grass, um, I'm making up scenarios in my head, but in the grass world, you're going after some broadleaves later in the season, that might be the time to put down some boron.
1: Correct. Yep, and we know that there's certain physiological antagonisms and synergies that affect these micronutrients as well. If if I think about my kind of agronomy platform, I tend to focus a lot on what I call yield components. Right. So these are the ways that that crop functionally puts yield on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm getting at, like say in your forages, plants per acre, shoots per plant, and the mass, the weight of each one of those shoots. Mm-hmm. There are phases that these yield components, uh, periods of time that these yield components are most sensitive to stresses, but also most responsive to our management inputs. It's pretty fundamental and it's pretty basic, but I keep going back to that thought process of in a year like this, where we have to be so intentional about that timing, what's my limiting factor and how do I affect that limiting factor with the inputs I'm putting down? if you think about timothy as an example the research points to your likely most yield limited in your shoots per meter squared right that middle phase mm-hmm. so how can you most intentionally hit that middle phase can you make sure that your fertility on say in march are highly available for that peak biomass accumulation <laughs> that happens in the middle of that phase
0: this is where we go to, uh, back to Dr. Steve Franson saying you have to have a four-inch cut height of the, uh, the preceding year to get that stem count up.
1: Yes, that's exa- well, and he is foundational in a lot of that, what yield components are driving most of that yield, and that's what he found is that we have to think about ways to drive that shoots per meter squared component because it's the most limiting in our environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, producers have lots of triggers that they can pull, lots of decisions to make, where they don't necessarily have to eliminate fertilizer from their routines because of this high-cost structure.
1: Correct. I guess I keep coming back to the intentionality, right? Your top producers are going to figure out a way to drive that efficiency, and timing is a huge component of that efficiency. A one-and-done approach, although functionally efficient to cover the acre, is not going to be the most efficient use of your fertilizer.
0: Let's take a break there, and we'll get a word from our sponsor. From the hay field to the feed bunk, look to Vermeer. You've got livestock to feed. You know about our lineup of mowers, rakes, and balers. Now, we're taking our legacy to the bunk. Introducing the Vermeer lineup of vertical mixers and feed wagons. 20 different makes and models to fit your operation. Durable, long-lasting components, and accurate scales with Bluetooth capability. From the field to the feed bunk, look to Vermeer. Now, let's... Turn a corner here and go down the bio product lane here. There's a world of biological products promising to stimulate bacteria in the soil and release all the nutrients that are there. I'm not a really big acolyte of that thought process, but certainly you have some exposure. Could you give us your thoughts on that world?
1: Sure. Uh, and I'm probably going to end up on a few different tangents, so you're going to have to pull me back a little bit. I guess first off, biostimulant is a really large category, right? It could be microbial-based. It could be organic carbon-based. So are we talking like the algaes and seaweeds, humic acid, fulvic acid, protein hydrolysates? Are we talking, quote, bugs in a jug where we're introducing functional microbes into that soil? Are we introducing microbial food sources that are different than the food sources they have access to? Uh, Are we talking a plant growth regulator all of those could be considered a biological in some, or a biostimulant probably more appropriately in some fashion. So the category is (laughs) broad. I guess let's drill into some of the biologicals, more specifically like a a microbial base. The world according to CAT, I would assume the more research is done on these organisms, the more we're going to understand what they do. When a lot of the microbial-based products were being introduced to the market, say five years ago, 10 years ago, it was a very shotgunned approach. Everything was co-fermented. There was very few, um, you know, single or double-stranded type products. And we were kind of told to put them on in every application, in every scenario, in every trip across the field for every crop. And in reality, the repeatability of what they were doing just wasn't there. And I think we, we inherently know that as agronomists that the more we understand what the product does, the better off we can use it a prime example i have is a lot of the phosphorus solubilizing type microbes the reality i face across a majority of the dryland farming area in the pacific northwest is we have very low phosphorus numbers in our soil so it isn't a function of solubilizing phosphorus it's a it's a function of we don't have any other areas in the midwest they have tied up bound up phosphorus from lots of manure applications or things of this nature so that microbe works to take inorganic phosphorus sources and make them organic again that's not our reality we we functionally just don't have it in the soil it isn't there so solubilizing something that isn't there isn't helpful
0: all right we're going to take a pause here and do a commercial for soil testing <laughs>
1: Exactly. Soil testing, tissue testing, you name it. Figure out what is limiting on your acre.
0: Right. And as part of that fertilizer regime or even this biostimulant world, you have to know what you have because if you're trying to make something organic and available to the plants that isn't there, correct, it won't do any good, right?
1: That's 100% what I'm getting at. Conversely, I've done some work with a microorganism that solubilizes sulfur. Guess what we do have in our soil?
0: Yeah, we're we're good on sulfur. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Correct. So making sulfur more available sooner? I've gotten some good results out of that product.
0: <laughs> That's very interesting. I'm just thinking of all the guys up here that just piled on ammonium sulfate for years and years and years and years and, years and drove their pH through the ground, but they have a lot of sulfur
1: correct so it makes sense when you talk it out loud that the more we understand what the product does the better off we can use it mm-hmm. and the shotgun approach it's just i take it back to a lot of pgrs pgrs are very plant growth regulators are very specific to the crop and timing mm-hmm. we know we know that to be the functional truth i believe that's where we're going to get with a lot of our biological type products is we will know the crop In timing to use them at, and that's when we're gonna start being successful.
0: What I just heard you say is as producers are evaluating these biostimulants, these bioproducts, those are the questions to be asking is when and how and what crop.
1: Yes. When have you had the most successes? How can I make it work to start understanding does it have a fit in your operation?
0: And really, that's no different than you should be doing with NPK, micros, all of those things. If I'm soil testing and finding that I have adequate zinc, it's not worth it to put zinc on, right?
1: Yeah, it's one of those huge news flash. If something isn't <laughs> limiting, it's likely not going to drive a response.
0: Right. It's not going to help you in your operation and not going yes. to provide that economic return,
1: which is what really matters. It, exactly. Profitability, 100%. Mm-hmm. Kind of going back to your micronutrient question, I get the luxury of looking at a ton, And I mean like probably 5,000 soil samples a year because McGregor's is so concentrated in the Pacific Northwest and another 1,000 tissue samples a year. So being able to see that what trends exist in the nutritional profiles across the PNW is really uh, an, an interesting strength for me. So for example, odds are high 90% of the soil and tissue samples taken in this region come back very high in iron it's a limiting micronutrient in the majority of the Midwest. So it's in a lot of the pre-made micronutrient packages that are moved into the Pacific Northwest. However, because of our low pHs and just the the natural state of our soils, Mm -hmm. it's borderline toxic. So putting more on the crop generally antagonizes yield, not enhances it.
0: That's very interesting. This is is the concept of... If you just pour a pile of fertilizer on the ground and let it sit, you kill everything.
1: Yes. Yep. (laughs) And It's like, uh, yeah, there's, what do they call it? Dilution is the key to the solution. Uh, Yeah.
0: yeah, Solution is, uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. There we go.
1: There we go. I think that sounds more right. (laughs) Yeah. Just putting, putting more on for the sake of more on isn't a recipe for a positive result.
0: Right. I think we've beat that horse. Test your soils, understand what your limiting factors are, and then work with your agronomist or or just do a bunch of research and figure out if it's NPK, what kind of fertilizer source you're looking at, what kind of timeframes. And then if it's in the bio world, again, you're looking to identify that limiting factor and then find the product that addresses it, right? Did I Did I yes, capture sir. all of that?
1: Yeah, and don't forget timing. Timing is everything when we're talking about profitability of nutrition as well.
0: Perfect. Uh, You've done some work with chemical companies to add crops to product labels. Uh, This is the point where I stop and say, as you're dealing with uh, crop protection products, especially herbicides, pesticides, insecticides, read the label. The label is the law. The label is the law. Now we can proceed.
1: (laughs) So, yes, the the label is 100% the law. When chemical companies are evaluating what makes the most profitable sense to put on those labels, they will have generally what is called a master label. So that's what's submitted to the EPA. And then they have the label that's published. So the master label contains all this nuanced language and oftentimes other crops that aren't going to be part of the published label. Risk Cup has a lot to do with that published label, like where companies are going to take the risk associated with bringing that chemistry to market. All of that to say, oftentimes if a company is going after the largest markets, right, it makes sense. They're the most profitable although hay is super important to everybody listening to this podcast, and you in particular, may not be the most important thing to some of our major manufacturers.
0: I mean, in the pure export Timothy world, I mean, we're only talking, I mean, less than 100,000 acres, right?
1: Correct. I was going to say 50,000 in the state of Washington and probably another 50,000 scattered throughout the Western US, right?
0: Nailed it. Yep.
1: The market is only so big. And when you're Going up against a 90 million acre crop like corn and soybean, you can see how insignificant export Timothy becomes in a hurry.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: What we have found is that oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes companies aren't approached with a market opportunity. Uh, Some of the work that McGregor Company has been doing around, say, fungicides and Timothy, I think is a prime example of this. When we dove into the research program, it's been almost five years now. Fungicides are pretty foundational to how we manage cereal grains, dry land and irrigated. Digging into the Timothy Hay issue, there was exactly zero options that were labeled. Zero that were uh, chemistry. So I'm talking like a group three, a group 11, a group seven, something like that. Nothing. I was shocked. Hmm. There were some biologicals, so like Serenade, Bacillus subtilis that bear produces, uh, Prevam is an activated orange oil. There's a couple other organic products that um, we evaluated and looked at and were on label, but nothing from the chemistry side. Started digging in a little bit more and an old timer, quote unquote, and Bruce Palmer, he had been with McGregor's for 45 years and just one of those like incredibly brilliant self-taught agronomists had this idea that if there was any kind of harvest to hay or feeding type language on those labels, odds are high the master label would have some kind of feeding study already and there might be an appetite to take the risk in the forage.
0: If a label has maybe corn silage, that would be a good indication that there's a chemical company, uh, the, the chemical company's done the res- uh, some sort of feed trial.
1: Correct. Yep. Or do not harvest treated wheat forage or some, some language around that could indicate that that work has already been done in some fashion. Mm-hmm. So started digging into that, started asking suppliers and our manufacturers if there would be any appetite to expand those labels. Trotted down that road for a while, was told no a lot of times. Yeah, right. <laughs> But eventually, what came out of that was as chemistries are now coming to market, those manufacturers heard that we have a use case in the P&W for a fungicide in that Export Timothy market. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> so as they started developing products, then we were actually at the table instead of just not even considered. And that's been some pretty positive work, I would say, that has brought some light for manufacturers into the hay market. I've had more contract work for forage grasses in particular Mm -hmm. in the last three years than than we probably had in in the previous 15.
0: If a producer's in the South growing Bahia or they're in Kansas growing sorghum Sudan or, or something like that, uh, where they're looking to have a product label expanded. How does how does a producer go to a producer organization or uh, uh, maybe a hay growers association and say, hey, we need to get this done. There's an opportunity here. How do you reach out to your crop consultant or
1: how do you do this? Yeah, it's a really good question. Seems a lot of that is my job, but I think the biggest thing is to bring the problem to light. If suppliers in your grower organization cannot say that this is a problem, then it will never make it to the table. Um, Simply saying or being able to voice that you think anthracnose is a concern that if you had some kind of tool to help address early season leaf diseases, if you have a certain weed, being that squeaky wheel, I think, goes a long ways. If we don't know there's a problem, nobody's ever going to advocate for you.
0: Sure. And then being that squeaky wheel is reaching out to University Extension from University Extension. They'll get you in contact with somebody that might be able to answer the question. Does that sound like a decent way to start?
1: Sounds like a pretty good way to me. I like that avenue through your grower organizations or your your hay producers type organizations. hmm If you've ever heard Alex McGregor talk, he's a big advocate of we have a voice as agriculture if we're willing to use it.
0: Yeah, I love that sentiment. Makes me happy.
1: Great. (laughs) But if you've ever heard Alex, you know that he is a hard man to ignore.
0: (laughs) So, we've talked about a lot of stuff today, and there's more to come. So, we're going to have Kat back next week for, I'm going to call it a mini episode, but... It might uh, just be a second episode with Kat on her forage research. I look forward to having you back again. Thank you again so much.
1: Well, awesome. I appreciate the opportunity. As you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about the fact that I get to identify problems, solve problems, and hopefully bring producers of the Pacific Northwest some solutions along the way. It's a super rewarding job, and I get to work with people like you and growers across the region that i get to call home
0: well thank you much for those of you interested in learning more about the mcgregor company just search mcgregor.com if you'd like to sport some hey kings swag check out heykings.com and a big thank you of course to our sponsor vermeer thank you to our audio editor nick Palmieri and our social media coordinator jessica palmeri <music>